This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. a Bible, there's some guys in the back that have that. That's our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home, mark it up, read it. Um, if you just need a Bible today, just lift your hand and they'll, and they will get that in your hands and you can leave that on the seat when you leave if you left yours at home. And when you get that Bible, can you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10 and we're going to be studying verses 14 through 21 today. Romans chapter 10 verses 14 through 21. Now let me give you just kind of a overview of where we have been, um, and, and I'm not going to do a whole overview of the whole book, but I wanted to start in chapter 8, because I think chapter 8 kind of sums up the beauty of the promises that we've seen. We, we're kind of soaring, if you will, to the heights of the promises that the gospel brings to us, that God gives to us because the gospel is true, because God has created all things and man stands in sinfulness against Him. We've rebelled against God, that we have turned our backs on Him, that we have decided we want to live life under our own rule and reign rather than under His Lordship. We sinned against God, but God so lovingly and graciously has sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, to raise from the grave, giving us new life, that He, by His Spirit, now dwells in us, and and that relationship that was separated has been restored. We get to be in union with Christ, and chapter 8 just kind of soars with the assurance that we receive If all of this is true, if all that God has shown us in chapters 1 through 7 is true, then chapter 8 just gives us this real proclamation of these promises. In verse 1 he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In verse 11, he says it's the Spirit that will give you life. In verse 16, he shows us that the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. Verse 18 shows us the glory that is revealed, that will be revealed, is better than these present sufferings. And then verse 28 shows us that all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Verse 30 shows us that He pre- destined us and called us and justified us and he glorifies us verse 31 says if God is for us then who can be against us verse 32 says he did not spare his own son and if he didn't spare his own son he won't withhold any good thing for us verse 33 says God justifies no one uh, because God has justified us no one can bring a charge against his elect Verse 35 says, who can separate us from the love of God? The answer to that is a resounding, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Verse 37 says, we are more than conquerors for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, you need to hear these truths because what Christ has done, because of the union that we have with Him, there's a deep assurance of our salvation There's nothing that can be brought against us that we stand in full right standing with God. We have been united with Him. And then after we soar into chapter 8, it seems as if chapter 9 just comes out of nowhere with this car wreck of 
God just proclaiming His sovereignty over salvation. Chapter 9 trips so many people up. We get so stuck on chapter 9. But there's a reason that chapter 9 follows chapter 8. Paul is trying to continue this argument that he's making. Chapter 9 is really important. And here's the reason why. Because the the Jewish people, the people of Israel, are are asking this question, if, if, if this is true, if, if God has um, embraced the whole world through Jesus, and He sent His Son to establish a new covenant, and if He has set in motion this global mission to rescue all sinners, and if, if He has uh, gloriously consummated the entire universe and all of these promises are totally dependent upon God, if God has done all of this and it's totally dependent upon Him and now all these Gentiles are streaming into the kingdom of God, that's, that's us, we get to enjoy the benefits now of this new covenant people. And what's happened to the children of Israel? What good is a covenant anyways if God can just change it and break it? What good is the history of Israel? Is there a future for, the, for Israel? And we're going to look at that next week in chapter 11. But Paul is dealing with this accusation of, is God faithful to His covenant? Has God's promises failed Israel? And the answer that we see in chapter 9 is a resounding no. No. He has not failed His covenant. And he shows us the reason why in chapter 9. Even though we get tripped up on a lot of the language, he shows us that people thought that Israel was an ethnic group. And yes, there is this ethnicity, but it was designed of, this is not just an ethnic group. He shows us that this is a spiritual group of people. They weren't saved by their race. They weren't saved by their race all through history. They were saved by God's grace. That true Israel is not an ethnic group. True Israel is intact. Why? Because true Israel was a spiritual group that was saved by grace. And so because they thought that Israel was just an ethnic group, they thought they were saved by race, and they thought they were saved by their good works and the law. But Christ shows us, but God shows us in in, in chapter 10, verse 4, that all of the promises of God throughout all of history have been fulfilled in Christ. That's good news. That it's all hinged upon. And the way that it was missed that we see in chapter 9 is election. God's choosing to show mercy to who He shows mercy. God's choice and pursuit to redeem and restore. This, This part of this is God's sovereign mercy and this big overarching beautiful view of how great and sovereign God is in salvation. We find so much rest in that. That it's all fulfilled in Christ. But then we see last week that if it is all fulfilled in Christ, then we don't have to pursue trying to 
work harder to ascend to salvation or we don't have to try to descend to salvation where we pay the own, our own price for our sin. And last week when we, when we preached through Romans 5 through 13 and both services there were people who heard the news of the gospel and responded with saying, I don't want to work for salvation. I don't want to pay for my own salvation, but I want to trust in the Lordship of Christ and to stand over in that corner and to pray for people who were professing their faith in Christ was beautiful. It's beautiful. You see, where Israel missed it was they thought that Israel was an ethnic people, but they were God's chosen, elect, spiritual people that he saved them by grace. Chapter 10 shows us something that's really interesting to that because a lot of us, when we think of the doctrines of grace, which I love the doctrines of grace, believe in the doctrines of grace, believe in God's work in salvation, that God has saved us, seem to find contradiction when it comes to not only did they miss it because of election, chapter 10 shows us they missed it because of unbelief. They rejected God's call to them. These are not contradictory, my friends. These are not contradictory. God is choosing and is electing and is showing mercy. He's holding his hands out and people are rejecting and in unbelief. And what this is going to show us as we read through 14 through 21 is how salvation has always and will continue to come to his people. So if we could stand, we're going to read um, Romans 10, 14 through 21. Some of you have heard these texts before, but I pray that these by the Spirit will be renewed in our hearts. Now remember as I read this, this is not my word, these are God's words. How then will we call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voices has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have, I have been found by those who did not seek him. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God, let these words sink deep into our hearts. Let there be both a call and response as, you, as we hear words preached today. 
Let your heart, let the hearts of your people be stirred. And let those who hear respond. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let me just put it this way. There is huge importance to this text. Huge importance to this text. We need to understand how God has come to save us from wrath and guilt and the dominion of sin and that we could have, through the understanding of this text, a real understanding of the eternal joy that we have in God. We need to understand this text not only um, so that we can see the argument of what is being made here, but we need to understand this text because this is not only has got how God has saved throughout all of history with Israel because he keeps going back to the proclamation of the prophets all the way through this. This has been God's plan of salvation all the way through continuity of the scriptures. There wasn't it one plan and then a second plan. This has been God's plan all the way through his word. So it's huge for us to understand how um, your children, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, our neighbors, our colleagues, unreached people groups, whatever you want to put in that category, um, how will they be saved? Not only how were we saved, but how will they be saved? This is huge in us understanding. This is a part of, of Scripture that's unique in this sense. It lays out like nowhere else how God saves His people. Here's how we see this happening. And he refers back to prophetic voices that came to Israel over and over again. So he's showing that this was the way that he did it even in, in Israel. This is the way that he's done it in sending his son Jesus. And this is the way he's doing it to this day. Verse 14 and 15 show us this. And I'm going to go in the reverse order. Paul kind of descends into this argument. But I'm going to start from the bottom. What he says is, how are they going to preach unless they're sent? So we're going to start with this idea of sent. What does it mean to be sent? I think this is really important. For some reason... Uh, when we talk about um, the mission of God's people, some people break them off into categories. And if you haven't fallen into this category and you know this, then that's fine. But some people have. There are those they put in the category of senders and preachers, right? So they're going, oh, well, some of us are senders and some of us are preachers. And when they mean that is they're going, listen, we're going to send out professional missionaries and preachers, and the rest of you are going to be senders. And what does it mean to be a sender? It means put money in a plate. We're going to send professional preachers. And your job, you don't have to preach, just pay them to do it. Now, wouldn't that just be nice and clean and kind of check us out of the mission of God if we could just drop a couple bucks in the plate and say this is their job. We pay the professionals to do that. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't support missionaries. If God's laid it on your heart to support and to give some money, praise God for that. But what we can't do is assume that this is what that text is saying. What we have to understand when we think of this word sending is we have to look at the, the story of Scripture and we have to understand that God is a sending God. Throughout history, he references this. Paul makes this argument. God has been sending prophets to the people of Israel 
all through history. Prophets declaring that they are not hearing the word of the Lord, that they have hard hearts. He's, he's declaring these prophets have come to declare the word of the Lord. But God shows us his, the beauty of his sending nature when he sends his son Jesus into the brokenness of the world. And isn't it amazing that as Jesus comes into the world, every good and, 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 and work that he does, every demonstration that he does, every healing that he does, every proclamation that he does, he always talks about, I do this because my father has sent me to do this. I do this because my Father has given me the authority to do this. I do this because God has put, my Father has put these words in my mouth. Jesus found great rest in knowing that he has been sent by his Father. And you know what that meant for Jesus? That meant that Jesus was not only here to do a work, but that means that he was tied into relationship with his Father. He was under the authority of his Father who sent him, and he had been given everything he needed from his Father to do all the work that he had been called to do. Jesus rested in being sent because it meant he had been given everything he needed to do what he had been sent to do. Plus, because he had been sent, he knew that his father was with him, putting the words in his mouth, giving him everything to say. He had full confidence in the fact that he was not going to preach unless he knew it was connected to his father. Then, the text that, that Wes read, way better than I could, right? All authority, Jesus says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me. And, and then he talks about how the Father sent him, he's going to send his disciples, and he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, and I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the earth, baptizing, teaching. He's telling them what to do, but he's showing them, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you in the same way. The same way the Father has put the Spirit in me and given me all that I need and connected to him, I'm giving this to you, that there's a great understanding standing and you're not going to preach unless you know that you are connected to and under submission to and empowered by and given everything you need from the one who's sending you. An interesting story, an illustration of this that we see of a centurion who sends his, uh, because his, his, uh, his, one of his slaves is sick, a centurion sends um, the elders to Jesus, and he sends them to say, will you come and heal? Just say the word, he says, and this whole story is so beautiful. He keeps sending people, and, and, and the last one he sends, he says, you don't even need to come into my house. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And he keeps saying this kind of thing. I understand what it means to be under authority. Just I, I tell people to go, and they go, and I tell people what to do, and they do this, and they go here, and they come here, and all these kinds of things. And Jesus marvels at the faith of this Gentile centurion, and he marvels at this guy's faith. Why? Because this guy understood what it meant to be sent. He sent elders. He sent servants. He sent them. He said, you don't even need to come. Why? Because he knows that when I send somebody in the eyes of God, it's not as if they're even there. They're just going. It's like, let me give you the best example I can. When, when I send one of my sons to say, go get your sister, or when I send one of my daughters to say, go get your brother, they're in trouble. Right? They run to them and they run in, 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 in not because they're smaller or because they're strong in themselves. They run in under the authority of their father and they say, Dad said, come here, you're in trouble. 
You're going to get in big trouble. You're going to expect they could even add words, you know, but they're just, they're just bold. Why? Because it's my son who's way bigger than their little sister doesn't see the sister standing in front of them. They see the one who sent them. They're bold. Why? Because they know it's not their words. They know if they mess with that little girl, they're messing with the dad who sent them. There's a great confidence that comes when you know you're sent. When you don't know you're sent and you think you're out there on your own, or if you are out there on your own, you have no authority, you have no power. So being sent has so much to do with us understanding we're called. God does not call you into something where he does not give you everything you need to do what you've been called to do. The second thing is, what is he doing? He's sending preachers. He refers to different prophets throughout history who God has sent to declare something. He keeps referring to Isaiah, which I think is interesting, and we'll say why, I'll say why I think it's interesting, but he keeps referring to Isaiah. And, but what does it mean to be a preacher? Well, here's the other thing. Uh, when we say people don't understand what it means to be sent, I would also say people don't know, understand what it means to be a preacher because immediately in your mind you think, there's the preacher. Here's the church. People, there's the preacher. You know? Whatever that means, there's the preacher. That's the professional paid preacher. I'll give him money. He'll do his job. The reality is this text does not let us check out of that role. When we're called into relationship with Christ and we are called into covenant and relationship with him, not by our own works, not by our own efforts, as he says, when we're called into that, we're called not only into privilege, we're called into the great responsibility it is to be his children. That means this. We're sent to be preachers. This word preacher is to herald and announce. It's both to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel. Can I, can I just make a real clear distinction? Some of you go, well, I'm just here to demonstrate. I don't say anything. And others go, I just say things, and it doesn't matter how my life goes. <laughs> Let me say, proclamation and demonstration are intri- they're intrinsically woven. They, they are a part of you. You can say all these things, and if your life is a, is, is a total out of under the lordship of Christ, and you're just saying all the right things, The Bible has something to say about who you are. Or if you just go, well, I'm just one of those guys who just lives out the gospel and I never say anything, and you really think that the Bible says, preach words and when, I mean, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Like you thought that was an actual Bible verse. To check yourself out of saying something. So you're like, I just live it out. And then people could literally say, why are you so different? And you won't even tell them the gospel. They're like literally, please tell me about Jesus. Mm -mm, mm -mm. That's not my job. Aaron? The reality of this is, Both of those extremes are not what it's been called. You're not called to just be a herald with a life that is outside of the Lordship of Christ. But when you are under the Lordship of Christ, there's a weight of going, I need to demonstrate and I need to proclaim. I need to herald and I need to announce. I hope that as the people of God, we understand the power of preaching. They will not know the gospel just by you living it out. You've got to say something. Say something. Some of that just went over here. Some of you got that. You listened to too much music. 
You've got to say something, church. How are they going to hear unless somebody says something? God's given you his word. God's placed in you everything you need. God's given you a testimony of how he's redeemed you and changed your life. God's placed you in and brought you into union and relation. He's given you your heart for the nations. He's given you his love and desire for the rest of the world. Can't just sit by and not say something. I love what verse 15 says to follow that up. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who are proclaimers. Because it's through the hearing that people confess and believe. Let me, let me just make this comment and run through it and just hope that it rests on souls the right way that I, I intend to say it. I, I, when I see a word that says how beautiful are the feet of those, here you have to, you, don't let this be lost on you. There are some people who are attracted to feet, but those are weird people. Most people uh, don't like feet. But here, here's, here's the importance of what he's saying here. He's saying that this part of the body, these, this feet is not described as a beautiful part, especially for one who would walk and go and proclaim. These were gnarled, gross, not manicured feet. These were leathered, sun, you know, sun-scorched feet, right? And he's saying, this is beautiful. And, and let me show you what, 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 what he's trying to do here. He's trying to define what beauty is because so many people in our culture today spend time on themselves trying to make themselves beautiful by painting themselves, doing all these kinds of things to make themselves beautiful so that somebody will look at them and say, you are beautiful. But hear me on this. Now, I'm not saying don't shower. I'm not saying don't do these things. Here's what I am saying. We spend too much time trying to make ourselves beautiful in ways that Scripture doesn't even call beautiful. It's amazing to me that he points to these bloody, um, wrinkled, leathery, scarred feet, dirt, worn preachers of the gospel and says, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. He doesn't point to manicured, painted, soft, well-tanned feet. talks about people who go to remote places, who go to the ends of the earth, who go and give their lives to serve him in whatever ways possible, who go across the street, who live their lives. It's this interesting story. A guy named Paul Brand, who was a medical missionary to India, said that his mother took all the mirrors out of her house. Now listen, I'm not saying take the mirrors out of your house. Just hear this. Took all the mirrors out of her house when she was told at the age of 70 that she was aging. So the last 20 years of her life, she never looked into a mirror and spent her lives, just spent her life not worrying about her aging, but spent her lives in the mountains of India, in the, in the villages, proclaiming the gospel. When she died at the age of 90, thousands of people came to her funeral and talked about how beautiful she was. Some of us would be consumed with the fact that I want to be beautiful. I want someone to look at me and say, you're beautiful. And the gospel would point to a different kind of beauty. My question is, how much of your time is really spent on true beauty? Not painted on beauty. True beauty. He points to the beauty of those who live their lives 
as Christ who gave himself. Verse 16 and 17 then talk about we're not only sent to those who hear. I love this because so many of us want to rise up to be preachers, you know, like, I want to preach. Some of us, yeah, I want to do that. I want to really be good. I want to gather a crowd. I want to do this. But I love to the prophet that he points to. He points to Isaiah. You remember Isaiah, when God's calling him, Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, sends me. And this is Isaiah 6. Have you heard that text before? Not, okay, some of you. Here am I, Lord, send me. So he's basically saying, God, okay, I'm here, I surrender, send me to wherever you want me to go. And then the rest, right after he says that, God kind of lays out the kind of people he's going to be sent to. And you should read it. It's Isaiah 6, 7 through 13. We can't read it today. But it's basically God just saying, everybody you go to is not going to listen to you. They're going to have hard hearts. It's going to fall on deaf ears. Basically, God's saying, I'm sending you to proclaim my love, goodness, and grace as a judgment to Israel, and they will not even hear what you're saying. I can't imagine that. I, let, me, let me just tell you, I've had the blessing and the benefit of preaching in this room and in other rooms and, 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 and in this church specifically. I love being in here, especially when people can go, amen, pastor. Sometimes you're too quiet for me. I wish I had an organ. I wish I had a crowd. I wish I had people who would yell back at me. But I, I would, you guys, I could see the nod on your head. I could see the amens. I could hear people coming up and saying, Pastor, man, that hit my heart. That was received. And I tell you, so much of that as a preacher can start to go to your head. And you could start to think the aim of preaching is people's response. But what's being referred to in this text is going... I'm sending you to places and nobody's going to like it. Nobody's going to listen. How much of your speaking to others is, is determined by whether you think they'll listen to you or not? And I can't say something. They're going to get mad. They won't listen. I've been, but then there's people you really want to talk to, you know? I love it when I hear somebody go, and that, that person, it's like they're already a Christian. Yeah, they don't believe in Jesus, but they're just there. They're happy. They're excited. They're already, I like talking to those people. And we are so drawn to talking to the people who were like, they really want to hear us. But we don't feel the weight of the call to go, what if God's calling us to people who will be like, no. Why? Because faith doesn't come because of just your preaching or because of how you said it, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So here's what the preacher understands. The preacher understands, I can't give you faith. I can't give you response. I can't make you move. That's what the spirit does in people's heart. The preacher understands, I have no control over your response. So when I start aiming for that, it twists how I preach because I want to get you pumped up. I want to get you excited. I want to get you engaged. The preacher who is wanting to be faithful to God's word is going not how do I get the people to respond. He's going how do I preach the word. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This contradicts what we even as a culture sometimes think of faith because you hear these faith preachers who say, faith comes by you proclaiming. 
Name it and claim it is how faith comes. You say the right things and that's how faith takes place. This scripture stands in the face of that and say faith doesn't come by your speaking. Faith comes by you sh- sh- and listening. And hearing God's word. So what do we need to do? We need to trust in God's word. That it, God's word saves people when people hear respond in faith they confess and they believe here's what we can think then when we hear something like that we can think well if I can just get a lot of knowledge and be really good at apologetics apologetics is like being able to argue with somebody on a real scientific or really you know intellectual level if I can just argue with them on this kind of intellectual level then they'll get it. They'll All of a sudden, their minds will click and they'll understand it. But just so that we don't go to that level, verse 18 and 19 comes. He said Israel had heard from, they'd heard. <laughs> Prophets were sent, they'd heard, and they'd rejected it. And verse 19 shows, did they understand? Well, God's showing us a way that he goes beyond just the proclamation because they'd heard it. What were they missing? God was making them jealous. Part of him bringing Gentiles into the kingdom and saving the whole world was to make his people jealous. Why? Because not only does he draw them because of understanding, that understanding, it's not mental assent. Salvation is in some ways a deep movement of affection towards Christ. That Christ draws us by affection. That even if we look in and we see others who are receiving blessings who don't deserve it and we're seeing God open up and pour out His grace on others, there's something in us who's going, I want that. What do I have to have? I mean, why not? And inside of that, we're pointing to Christ. Next week we're going to talk and I'm going to show a clip of one of our pastors named Neil who has this testimony, who was a Jewish man who watched Gentiles being saved and saw God's grace pour out upon those people and his affections were stirred. He was jealous. Why? Because God is not just calling us to mental assent. He's not just calling us to deep understanding. He's calling us into great affection and relationship with Him. Verse 20 and 21, after Romans 9, because Romans 9 is the great place for all Calvinistic Reformed theologians, which, you know, I describe myself in that, in that category. But they love to land in Romans 9 and show the sovereignty of God and salvation. But if you push into Romans 10 and read Romans 10, 20, and 21, here's what he says. Israel says, all day, but I said to Israel, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Here's the picture that God paints. That yes, I save people. But yes, I show mercy to people. But yes, I am the one who saves. And I'll show mercy to who I want. And I will say, but in that choosing of those people, he does not let us think that these two things are contrary. God chooses, we respond, either in rejection or affection. 
You cannot respond unless God first chooses. It's not like you can go, I choose you. If God doesn't first choose, we cannot respond. So a response is really hinged upon his election and his choice. But listen to me, friends. Do not eliminate response. Don't eliminate it. Because the Bible calls us to this picture of God holding out his hands and saying, you're rejecting the mercy of God. It's their unbelief. Why does he paint this picture? Because you will be sent to places where you will be holding out the hands of God. Here's here's the interesting part. As we go into a time of communion, many people who call themselves, like us, preach the doctrines of grace, God's salvation, They go, well, you never go out and preach to people. You never go out and tell people. Paul's showing us this. He's like, if I believe in what God's grace is, and I believe in his choosing, and I believe in his election, I also believe in a merciful and gracious God. What he's showing us is so many times we go, well, I don't need to tell anybody about God because God just saves, and they don't need to respond, and he's just going to do this whole thing. And what he's going is this. No, when we preach the gospel, there should be this real sense of people seeing God's hands being stretched out to the world, and then them going, going, no or yes. I want that or I'm going to reject that. And if that is true, then we need to rest in. That's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction at all that when I preach the gospel, I want people to hear the good news, the glorious news, and I also know that it's not dependent upon whether they receive or reject. It's not dependent upon whether I do the right thing or say the right thing. It's really dependent upon God's mercy being revealed to them by the Spirit moving on their hearts. So when I share the gospel, I'm not putting the weight that every person is going to receive it. I'm not pre-screening people that I talk to. They're chosen. They're not. They're chosen. They're not. You don't know. That's why Paul's saying, get that word out there. Spread it out to all. Preach the word. Herald it. Proclaim it. Let God do the sifting. Let God do the work. Let God move on the hearts of people. People will respond and reject, and they will stand before God, and they will not be able to say they didn't hear. As the band comes, we're going to end with this time of communion. I want you to close your eyes and just hear the three things we should learn from this. One is this. Christians are both goers and senders. Right? We are sent by God. We are to disciple others and send others. We are both proclaimers and demonstrators. We are called to embody the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And we believe in the power of God's word. That it's God's word that saves people. So what does that do? It gives us great rest. It gives us great understanding. It gives us great joy. Why? Because we know who God is. We know what God has done. We know his heart. But what we don't know is what God knows. (laughs) Romans 9 makes that really clear. Today as we come to the communion table, here's what I want us to remember. 
we're celebrating that we've been chosen by God, that he's done the work of salvation for us, that he has saved us, changed us, restored us. Do you know what the Bible also says about communion? It says not only do we remember, we're proclaiming that even in the partaking of communion, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Two things are going to happen as we pray. For the Christian, for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, are you working on true beauty? resting in the work of Christ not trying to earn some place or position and inside of that do you have God's heart for the people around you do you carry a weight and a burden for your co-workers for the people across the street you know that God has called you and sent you let this word sink deep into your heart and for others as you hear this word proclaimed If you want prayer this morning, we're going to have people to be praying for you. Maybe today you're saying, you know what, I I don't know if I've surrendered to Jesus as Lord and Savior of my life. Let today be that day, friends. I hope that you hear that God has both called you and is holding out His hands to you to surrender to Him as Lord and Savior. So if you want prayer before you take communion and maybe you're saying, man, I want to surrender my life to him as Lord and Savior, there's going to be people over there to pray for you. So right now we're going to respond by coming up the center aisles and taking communion and praying and singing and letting the Spirit convict us. But if you want prayer, you want to surrender your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Come and pray with us. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you that you have not only called us into your family, but you've called us on this great mission. You've given us everything you need, everything we need to do your work. But we don't do it out of of the law. We don't do it out of trying to earn some position or favor. We do it because you've given us your heart. We cannot look at the world around us and not be overwhelmed by the slavery and sin of the world around us. God, we want to see the captive set free. So, Lord, we live our lives not to change others, but we live our lives to proclaim the glorious good news. So as we come to these tables, we remember who you are and we surrender our lives to your mission and work. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a time for response.